Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Salim. I believe the word of God is truly the lamp unto our feet and a guiding light for our path. And a majority of the church neglects this guiding light because it's too difficult to comprehend. Well, God has given me a hunger to study the Bible and a passion to share it with you. My friends, if we don't understand the word, how can we apply it to our lives and actually live in obedience to Jesus? So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn the essentials of living a Christ-centered life. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Salim, week 13 of this Revelation series. We are back after we walk through two tough chapters, Revelation 12 and 13. And today we open up to Revelation 14 and we finally get some, some much needed good news. We find out what happens to those who refuse the mark of the beast, those who don't bow, those who follow the lamb wherever he goes. And it's important for us to know, to be convinced of our hope. And as, as things heat up and things get tough, we must know without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord is with us and we must understand the end of the story. We must pause at the moment and see where we are in the grand scheme of things. I mean, let's, let's just briefly recap our journey so far. I mean, we saw the intro to the letter, then the letters to the seven churches. We then moved into the throne room of God where we we saw the one on the throne. We saw the elders, the creatures, the angels. We saw the lion lamb who was worthy to open the scroll. And this scene, this scene right, right here from, from the throne room of God, it's going to be important going into this chapter and it's going to be very significant. And after the scene of heavenly worship, we, we saw the breaking of the seven seals and the unleashing of, of God's judgment. And then we, we moved into the seven trumpets. And this was a retelling uh, an intensification of, of the judgment of God from a different perspective. Remember the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are essentially this same story told from different perspectives. You remember that word recapitulation? Yes, God is slowing down the frames and showing us all the angles. And we can't miss it. And it's chapter 15. We come to the seven bowls. But until then, in between chapters 12 and 15, there is a recap of this story of judgment and redemption that takes place. And this is where we are today. And I want to point out that this, this recap, it consists of, of seven major events. And we can see there is an important number here. Number seven. And what are those, those seven events? Well, first, the conflict of the serpent with the woman and her seed in chapter 12. Second, the persecution of the, uh, by the beast from the sea from chapter 13. Third, we got the persecution by the beast from the land from chapter 13. And then fourth, the lamb and the, and the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion in chapter 14. And fifth, the proclamation of the gospel and, and the judgment by the three angels from chapter 14. Sixth, the son of man's harvest of the earth from chapter 14. And lastly, the saints' victory over the beast and, and their victory song, which takes place in chapter 15. So where we are today is, is right in the midst of this hiatus between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls and right in the middle of these seven events. In the middle of these seven events is what we call uh, the war of worship. I mean, there is a picture of the war between the unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, and the holy trinity of the, the Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. And right here, we, we have this picture of worship. And this is why chapter four and five, 
the throne room of God. This is why that's going to be so significant here. Remember, Jesus is pulling us into ultimate reality so that we can understand what our ultimate reality is. If you remember the last, the last few weeks, I've been telling you that Jesus being on the throne is ultimate reality. And based on last week's episode, Satan, he wants to take our eyes off of Jesus and he wants to destroy us. And the dragon, who is Satan, and his accomplices, they work to distract us from worshiping Jesus to worship them. And right now it's working on the masses, big time. I mean, just look around at how blind the world is. And we must understand something before we dive into this text. And I keep pounding this. You and I, we're not neutral. That There is a cosmic war going on and to be indifferent is the way of the dragon. Sitting on the sideline and not engaging is, is the way of the dragon. To be, to be a nominal Christian is to be out of the fight altogether. Guys, you're on a side, so you got to ask yourself which side are you on? The way of the lamb or, or the way of the devil? Guys, I want to point out that, that Satanism, the worship of Satan, it's, it's not just candles and pentagrams and, and, and children's sacrifice. It's, it's any kind of disobedience to the lamb. And let me repeat that. It is any kind of disobedience to the lamb. And this is what John is trying to lay before us. You are not neutral. You are on a side. And with that being said, let, let's read our text today and, and let's dive in. Let's open to Revelation 14. And today we're going to walk through verses 1 through 5. And it says, Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like a roar of mighty ocean waves or the rolling of loud thunder. It, it was like the, the sound of, of many harpists playing together. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in the front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They had kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the lamb. They have told no lies. They are without blame. So verse one, it says, Then I saw the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him were the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So notice that John says, then I saw. John saw the lamb and the 144,000. And so we have chapter 13. If we go back, it, chapter 13 describes the, the onslaught of evil that will occur when Satan and his helpers um, control the world. You remember the accomplices? The beast of the sea, the state? And the beast that rises up out of the earth, the false prophet, the, the, the religious institution. Well, chapter 14 gives us a glimpse into eternity to show believers what awaits them if they endure that onslaught of evil. The lamb is the Messiah. It's King Jesus. You got Mount Zion, often another name for Jerusalem, the, the, the capital of Israel. But it's contrasted, Mount Zion is contrasted with the worldly empire. And the 144,000, we've talked about the 144,000. This represents believers who have endured persecutions on earth and now are ready to enjoy the eternal benefits and blessings of, 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 of life with God forever. Look at the comparison 
or the contrast from, from chapters 13 to 14. It's going to be so important for us to do this. Let me just point out a few, um, a, a, a few scriptures, uh, verses to contrast here. In chapter 13, 11, there is a lamb, but he's a false lamb. And then here in chapter 14, we see the true lamb. In chapter 13, he comes out of the earth. In chapter 14, we see the lamb on Mount Zion. In chapter 13, verse 12, there is the worship of the beast. In chapter 14, 1, there is a song of the 144,000. In chapter 13, verse 18, there is the number 666 representing the beast. In chapter 13, verse 16, everyone's enslaved. Chapter 14, 3, the saints are redeemed. In chapter 13, verses 16 through 17, there is a mark of the beast. Chapter 14, verse 1, there is the name of the lamb and his father's and of his fathers that is written on their foreheads. In chapter 13, verse 14, there is the deception of the beast. And then there's chapter 14, 5, there are the 144,000 with no lies in their mouth. And clearly, it was intentionally written this way to show the contrast of God and the dragon. And this is the good news for those who follow Jesus. I mean, this absolutely points to the vindication that is coming for those who follow the lamb. Guys, this is the essence of the war of worship. I mean, in this war, there are several things that point us to the ultimate outcome and why it's placed here for the saints to take heart, to give us strength to endure. I mean, you think about when Jesus said, take heart, I've overcome the world. I mean, this is, what's, this is what, what he means. He, he's the victorious King Jesus standing on Mount Zion. And so I mentioned in this war, there are several things. Well, let's, let's start first with the presence of the true lamb. That means that the adversary in chapter 13 is opposed. The lamb is present. Note, notice that he doesn't arise like the other beast. The beast that came out of the land and the sea they, they rose out. But here in chapter 14, John writes, he looked down and the lamb was standing there. He stood there on Mount Zion. It wasn't a, he descended down to Mount Zion. Not he, he rose up to Mount Zion. Not he walked to Mount Zion. He just is there. He's just standing there like a boss. I mean, in the clamor, in the chaos of chapter 13, the beasts are going about they're raging, they're warring, they're, um, they're bringing chaos and calamity everywhere. The picture of, of the beast rising out of the sea. And remember, the sea represents chaos and confusion. And then you got the picture of the beast rising out of the earth, which also represents chaos and confusion. And all of a sudden, as we read about the mark, we, we read about all the war and the people not being able to buy or sell. And we see what? John looked and he saw the lamb standing on Mount Zion. There is a contrast here, and the contrast speaks volumes that in this war of worship, the adversary is opposed. And we see this because of the presence of who? Of the Lamb, of Jesus. Second, this is a strategic location because the the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion. And we know John is speaking symbolically here. And what is this symbolic of? Well, this is symbolic of the redemption of God's people. The term Mount Zion, it only happens in the Old Testament 19 times. And nine of those 19 times, it's a picture of the redemption of God's people. And here, it's precisely that. 
I mean, go read, pause this right now and go read Psalm 2. Amazing. I mean, this this is a picture of chaos and confusion um, that the dragon tries to bring to the earth. But look at who wins and rules. What What does the text say? Blessed are those who take refuge in God. And this is what John has in mind as he sees the lamb standing on Mount Zion. I mean, in the midst of all the madness, when people are being enslaved, the people are being um, tortured, they're being killed for not bowing down, the question becomes, who can endure this? And the answer comes here in the first phrase of chapter 14. John says, I looked and I saw the lamb, Jesus, standing there on Mount Zion like a boss. I'm sure he would have said that if, if that slang existed back then. He's saying those who follow the lamb, those are the ones who can endure. Third, notice the lamb is always there. I mean, think about when we pray in distress. You know, sometimes we're like really needing the Lord. Lord, please come and help me. Guys, we we, we don't have to pray for him to come. He He's already and always, he, already and always there. He, he just is. Guys, God, God is never late. He's just with you. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28. I'm with you till the end of age. That's the hardest thing, isn't it? Not seeing him, believing that he's there. Guys, we've got to come to a place where we know he's with us. Fourth, notice the authority of the lamb. Guys, the beast is a counterfeit version of Jesus. I, I keep saying that. He's a fraud. And remember, remember the, the lamb, Jesus, is part of the Holy Trinity. The beast that comes out of the earth, the false lamb, is a part of the unholy trinity. This beast is attempting to mimic God, even down to the symbolic number 666. And this number is a representation of the holy trinity. Seven means what? Completeness. Six is what? What's well, one less than seven? It's one short of seven. 666 is completely incomplete, as I mentioned last week. And that is all Satan and his minions will ever be. Everything about Satan falls short, but notice the lamb has inherent authority and represents perfection. He just is Lord. And notice the beast is granted authority. He was given what he had. He was allowed limited authority for the limited amount of time. He was allowed to make war against the saints. Authority was given in order for the beast to wage war. And then we have the second beast by which the sign was given to to be allowed to work and deceive those on earth. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. I think it was Martin Luther who who said, um, even the devil is God's devil. Guys, Satan does nothing without permission. He's He's on a leash, a very short leash, but he's on a leash. He has no authority of his own. So, so this should be comfort. This, our first comfort that comes to us right now is the fact that the unholy trinity is merely doing what it is allowed to do in the sovereignty of God. And the lamb stands there. Jesus stands there like a boss, unafraid in complete authority. Fifth, notice the mark that points to his authority. The mark of the beast, that's a product of fear and loss. I mean, go, go back to Revelation 13. In verses 16 through 17, by now you probably know it by heart, the mark of the lamb is, is different than this, this mark from Revelation 13. Guys, the mark of the lamb, it, it's a product of faith. I mean, and it's completely counterintuitive. We are in this world 
There is a war being waged against the saints. The saints are just being devoured. There's this dragon and this beast and this false prophet and the whole world is in chaos. And they say, you can't buy or sell without our mark. You can't eat or survive or do anything without our mark. And so logically, we assume that there's pressure on believers to receive this mark because of the fear of loss. And it seems counterintuitive not to accept this mark if you can't even feed your family without it. And yet, this 144,000, they don't have this mark of that beast on their forehead or on their hand. What do they have? Well, Revelation 14 says they have the mark of the father and the lamb in spite of what seems to be the only way to survive. I mean, this is reminiscent of the seal in chapter seven. If you remember, this was the answer to the question in chapter six, who on earth can stand through all of the, you remember all the, all the judgment that was coming? You got people hiding in caves, wishing they could die and the Lord wouldn't let them die and they'd crying for rocks to fall on top of them. And at the end of that says, who in the world can stand through all this? All the horses and the pestilence and the disease and the persecution and all the earthquakes and dude, who can stand? Chapter seven answered it. It said those who are sealed. Well, guess what guys? Chapter 14 is just a repeat of this. It's a different angle of this same thing. Who can stand? Those who are sealed by the father and the lamb. Those who don't bow to the beast. There is no taking the mark of the beast because with taking it, there comes the worship of the beast. You can't have one without the other. So here we have it at the end of chapter 13, we have the same question, who on earth can stand? And here we have the reintroduction of the 144,000, God's people who endured to the end. And let me just remind you again, who the 144,000 are. 12 times 12 times 1,000. The complete number of the people of God in the Old Testament times the complete number of the people of God in the New Testament times a ridiculously large number. And to whom we refer? Everybody. All the people of God of all time. It's the totality of the people of God. God is not going to be missing anyone in heaven. Those who follow the lamb will be there. Verse two, and it says, and I heard a sound from heaven, like a roar of mighty ocean waves or the rolling of loud thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing together. Notice John says, and I heard. So John heard this. He didn't see this. So this worship mentioned here originates from heaven. And where does the worship of the beast originate from? From earth. The worship of the lamb originates from heaven and it is superior worship and it is authentic worship. And then you have the roar of, of mighty ocean waves or many waters that's mentioned. Guys, we've heard this before. Revelation 1 verse 15, Jesus's voice was like the roar of many waters. And th this was the sound that John heard from heaven. This is the voice of ultimate authority. In Revelation 19 6, we see this again. John heard what seemed to be a voice of a multitude or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. This is, this, what this is, is an overwhelming sound of worship. There is this idea of thunder and we, we see this in Revelation 4 verse 6. We see it in Revelation 6 1, Revelation 8 5, Revelation 10 3 through 5. We see it again in Revelation eleven nineteen, and then Revelation 16 18. And then, as I mentioned, Revelation 19, 6. But listen to the idea of harps. In chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 8, the four living beings and each elder held a harp. And then in Revelation 15, 2, all the people of God were standing there holding harps. This sound is the sound of heavenly worship, and it is beautiful. In this worship, 
comes from the people of God. And this is what John heard. Verse three, this great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Let's just answer a question. And, and you guys already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it again. What does Satan desire from people? Yes, complete worship. What's happening here? Not, not that. This is complete worship of Jesus. This is the opposite of what Satan desires. And notice this song is echoed on earth. This wonderful new song is the song of the redeemed. And only the follower of Jesus will know and sing this song. I mean, anyone can sing, but only the redeemed can sing this song. Anyone can worship, but only the redeemed can offer Jesus this kind of worship that he expects and deserves. Guys, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and it will glorify God. On that day, it will glorify God. On that day, God's wrath against the wicked will bring glory to his name. His destruction of the wicked will bring glory to his name. But that is not what the scriptures here speaks of. What is spoken of here is true worship that comes from, from only the ones who have been redeemed and who follow the lamb wherever he goes with commitment and love. The worship offered here is, is not like worship on earth. The worship that is that is that this is and that will be offered in heaven is isn't even sustainable by us in the here and now. I mean, we aren't even able to worship in the here and now the way we will in heaven. First of all, it's, it's physically unsustainable by us. I mean, our voices can't sustain this kind of worship. Our ears can't survive this kind of worship. Our bodies can't endure this kind of worship. So there is a real sense that we await our new glorified bodies in order to enter into this fully. It's also emotionally unsustainable. I mean, we can't in our current state withstand the emotional intensity that will be in heaven. I mean, our minds can't even concentrate sufficiently in order to do what is being done here. It is spiritually un unsustainable. Why? Well, our sin hinders us. I mean, we're still sinners. And so there's still a sense in which we, you know, we are tainted and we don't worship God the way we should. I mean, so often we worship God out of our own selfish indulgence. We want it to be for us, what we like, our preferences. Why? Because we're sinful. Guys, we're just, we're not there yet. We're not in that glorified state. I mean, our thoughts here on earth betray us. Our flesh here, it fails us. But this won't be a thing when we get to eternity. Just know the worship we're talking about here is far and away more than anything we've ever experienced in our lives. So we know that the only worship that is authentic enough and genuine enough and good enough is the worship we will give God in heaven. We aren't even worthy here. What we offer God here is a joke. And, and luckily for us, he, he is merciful and he's gracious to love and guide us through it. And let us be reminded that God tells us how to worship. We don't call the shots on that. We, we don't invent that. No, notice this isn't a bunch of people in their own effort trying to outdo each other. They, they learned this song from the Lamb. This ability was granted by Jesus. Verse 4, they have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever he goes. They have purchased from among the people on earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. 
And, and, and here we see the followers of the lamb. And this shows us that the adversary has failed in his war of worship. And let's just notice the description of these followers. They're as pure as virgins. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, do we take this literally? I mean, if we're taking a literal approach, we'd have to admit that this is 144,000 ethnic virgin Jews. I mean, is that even possible? No. This is not at all speaking of people who've never had physical intimacy. I mean, if we put this in its context, it's clear what's being referred here. Go back to Revelation 2, verse 20. Jesus calls out the church of Thyatira for doing what? For following the ways of that Jezebel figure in her practice of sexual immorality and idolatry. Let's look at the connection. I mean, what is Revelation 13 all about? Idolatry, the worship of the dragon, the worship of the beast, the worship of the false prophet, it's idolatry. And so the idea of sexual immorality and idolatry are compared and contrasted frequently in this book. And it's happening right here again. The 144,000 that have kept themselves pure are the ones who haven't given in to this sin. They kept themselves free of this worship of the beast and kept themselves pure. Look at Revelation 17, three through four. Look at the woman in this description. This is a picture of the great beast. This woman held a gold goblet full of idolatry and obscenities and impurities and what else? Sexual immorality. Babylon the Great. You look at Revelation 16, uh, 17, six through seven. This woman, the beast, was drunk with the blood of the saints, the witnesses for Jesus. They were devoured by her because they failed to bow down to her. So we see clearly here that John is not speaking directly about sexual morality, but instead idolatry. When we are called pure as virgins, it means we have followed the lamb and have refused to take part in the worship of the beast. Those who are pure as virgins are the ones who have not engaged in the idolatry that Revelation 13 speaks of. They have not defiled themselves by worshiping the beast. Friends, you have to hear me on this. Keeping yourselves as pure as virgins is to stay faithful to Christ and not bow to this evil world system. And how are you currently doing with that? I mean, how many of us can answer this question honestly? I mean, what are the idols in your life that, that need to be put to death? I mean, I have mine. And the Lord's dealing with me on this. I mean, my family, you know, money, physical fitness, control, my pride. The list goes on, but the good thing is, is I'm aware of it and I'm getting help. I'm getting the help I need. And the question for you is, will you do the same? Notice the 144,000 are faithful followers of the lamb. I mean, this is a beautiful picture. I mean, there is a, uh, a contrast here. I mean, look at Revelation 13, three. One of the heads seemed to be wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. Now what is happening? The 144,000, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. I mean, this is the only reference um, to, to discipleship and following outside of the gospel, uh, uh, gospels and acts. I mean, this is a distinctive picture of worship. I mean, notice that we, we have not left um, the, the idea of true worship. I mean, it, it, true worship is, is a byproduct of redemption. And, and so often we, we associate worship, uh, worship with, with singing or what we do on Sunday. When in this text, true worship has everything to do with following the lamb. I mean, the people of chapter 13 were following the false lamb. These individuals here are following the real lamb. I mean, this is a byproduct of their redemption and it is a fruit of their worship. 
Guys, worship always manifests itself in obedience when it's authentic worship. If we're not walking in obedience, then we are not really worshiping. And what is typical of our Christian culture? Lord, we, we gather here to say that you're worthy. You know, we sing that you're worthy. We preach that you're worthy. We gather around your table to say that you're worthy. And then we, we want to leave and live in a manner that is completely contradictory to everything we just said. And we, we call what we did authentic worship. Um, no, that that's hot garbage and it's unacceptable. I mean, let me repeat myself. Authentic worship always manifests, manifests itself in obedience. In this war of worship, the adversary has failed mainly because these individuals, the 144,000, the complete people of God, the followers of the lamb are pure. They haven't given in to the idolatries and they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They mimic the lamb and whatever he does. They look like Jesus, the little Christ. And we must understand the tenses of worship. I mean, as true worshipers, we must worship in three tenses. And let me explain. There is the past tense of our worship. So we praise the Lord for, for, for who he is and what he's done. And when we worship, we always look back at what he's, you know, what's been accomplished. That is an essential part of our worship. There is also the sense in which we look forward in anxious uh, anticipation. And so we worship the Lord and anticipate his return, anticipate our being with him forever. And there is the present tense of worship, how the worship of God in the here and now impacts and affects our life. Let me give you a few examples. I mean, let's look at baptism. Let's look at the Lord's Supper. Let's look at those two. They are important aspects of worship. These are the two ordinances that the Lord left us. What do we do in baptism? We look back. Why do we dip a person in water? Well, there's a picture of Christ being buried when he died. And when we raise that person up out of the water, that's a picture of Christ being raised and resurrected. This is past tense. But this is also part of, uh, uh, there's also a part of this that, that's future tense. What do we look forward to? Well, this person that's, that's being baptized is also going to die. And when they die, they, they are going into the ground just like they're going into the water. But because Christ has, has risen, they will too rise someday. And what about the present? Well, I am right now being buried to my old life. And I'm being raised to walk in newness of life in the here and now. So there is past, there is the future and the present of our worship. And what do we do in the Lord's Supper? We look back. We look to the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We rejoice over our redemption because he died. And then, and then we are looking, uh, we're going to look forward as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But there is also a right here and right now. And I'm going to eat and drink. And it is a reminder of my need right here and right now to constantly feed on Christ. This picture of following the lamb wherever he goes is a picture of this present impact of our worship. Guys, are you seeing all of this? I mean, we must get away from the thought that our worship is putting on a song and raising our hands and singing. I mean, guys, worship is more than a song. Worship is a lifestyle. We must worship Jesus in all areas of our life all day, every day. 
And when John writes, man, these followers of the lamb are the ones who have been purchased from among the people on earth as a special offering or the first fruits, he speaks of the totality of God's people, which is a ridiculously large number. The 144,000 would have been a, 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 would have been a, a, a big number that no one in the first century could have ever fathomed. To us, this number is not a big deal. I mean, we have sporting events with this many people. I mean, we can actually go to a football game and see this number. But to a first century Christian, they couldn't imagine seeing this many people together at one time. But this text, even today, means a number that we can't even imagine. There is going to be a ridiculously large amount of people in heaven. There will be more people redeemed than we think. And we all underestimate this number. You contrast this to what happens in Revelation 13, verse 15, when they worship the beast for a limited period of time. So verse five, let me finish this up. They have told no lies. They are without blame. Notice these followers of the lamb, they're truthful. And notice another truth that, that, that shows we are not to take this literal. I mean, how could we take this literal? I mean, how many human beings on earth have, have never told a lie? Zero, ever in all of history. No one that is saved could say that. I mean, no one is that saved. Jeez. In the history of the world, except Jesus. That, that's it. Jesus is the only one who never lied. So, so John is not literally saying there are 144,000 virgins who have never lied. That, that, that's, that is ridiculous to think. And before you start saying that John is referring to what salvation will be like after the rapture and all of this nonsense, no, no, no. He is not being literal. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, so what is being referred to here? Let's answer the question. We have another contrast. Look at Revelation 13, 6. What does it say? And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. The beast is blaspheming and all who worship the beast do what? They blaspheme God. What does it mean to blaspheme God? To lie about God, to lie about his nature, to lie about who he is, to speak against him and to say what you, you ought not to. And what is the contrast here? God's people, the followers of the lamb, the, the 144,000, they speak truth. They don't blaspheme God. Huge contrast here of those who follow the beast and those who follow the lamb. So in this war of worship, it's clear that the beast has failed and the lamb has succeeded. It is clear that the beast has lost and the lamb has won. And Revelation 14 is here to encourage us. And we need this encouragement after we walk through Revelation 12 and 13. Revelation 13, it just looks bad. And it doesn't just look bad, it looks terrible. The beast gets to war against the saints. We're dying. We can't buy or sell or work or eat. The world hates Christians. It's awful. And we need some encouragement. And all we need is Revelation 14.1. Then I saw the lamb standing there on Mount Zion and with him was the 144,000. That's us. The complete people of God sealed, victorious. No matter how dark the days get, we look to Zion. We look to the day when our Lord will come and make all things right. The lamb never stands on Zion alone. Those of us who are sealed stand with him. As Paul says in Ephesians, we will be seated in the heavenly places. 
That is our birthright as born-again followers of the true lamb. I mean, this doesn't mean that the days aren't dark, but it does mean that we have victory no matter what. This doesn't mean that we won't experience hardships, that we won't experience trials and problems, persecution, even death. This means as we walk through this, Jesus is with us and the end of the story is absolutely secure. Jesus will empower our steps as we walk through the fiery trials. He is who helps us to endure and stand firm. His grace alone. So, so the question still remains, who, whose name is on you? Whose seal is on you? Whose number is on you? And you know what's interesting about Revelation 13? When we look at Revelation 13, it's written in such a way that it's, it's very easy for us to discern. If you bring anyone into Revelation 13, and then you bring them to Revelation 14, and you ask them, hey, you want chapter 13 or 14? Anyone in the right mind would say, hey, hey no, you can have chapter 13, go ahead and give me 14. Of course, there are some people out there that would say, I love the devil. Give me chapter 13. Yeah, of course, whatever. But overwhelmingly, most reasonable, rational people would not choose chapter 13 knowingly. And here's what you must keep in mind. Chapter 13 looks like it does to us because we're reading God's revelation. You know what it looks like to the lost, hurting, and dying world? That dragon looks like God. The beast, he looks like the sun. And the second beast, he looks like the spirit. He's pointing back to the sun. Those three sixes, they're really close to three sevens if you're not looking carefully. And after all, I mean, you know, God is the one who says, you know, we are obligated to take care of our families, right? So certain, you know, certainly someone who says, do this so you can buy or sell and take care of your families is, is someone to whom we ought to listen, right? And here's the truth that I want to touch on right now for our current world, our current context. Guys, the world is changing rapidly. This beast system has always been here. I want to say that. But there is an end times final beast system in which this Antichrist will rise and all of these events in the scriptures will come to fruition. The mark, being unable to buy and sell and so on, it's coming. And what I see today is just a foreshadow. It's a precursor. It's the fire drill. And sad reality is the masses don't see it. Many so-called believers don't see it. It is the select few that are actually awake, questioning all that is going on right now. Another sad reality is there are many people who think that they're in chapter 14, you know, the 144,000, when in fact they're in chapter 13, you know, the ones who bow to the beast. Because here's the deal. Chapter 13 only looks disastrous from a heavenly perspective. But if you don't have a heavenly perspective, you just look at chapter 13 as the way everyone lives. And where does this heavenly perspective come from? Guys, it comes from studying the word. It comes from studying the character of Jesus. It comes from knowing Jesus intimately. And the majority has no idea who Jesus is. Most Christians don't even know who Jesus is. So be, because of that, you aren't able to discern. For example, you know, it, it looks like your decent neighbor down the street who's just a good person. It looks like, like grandma who never went to church and never served the Lord, but was good to you and took care of you when you were sick. It looks like your uncle who was so much fun to hang out with and you absolutely love him to death. And if he called you today, you'd ask him to hang out. I mean, there isn't anyone else you'd rather hang out with. You know, he's just a good dude, you know? 
but he is all over Revelation 13. He's living that deceived life. Many are living this deceived life. They're, they're not looking to the lamb who is standing on Mount Zion. Their mark is 666. Their worship is being offered to a false Christ and a false God and a false spirit. And if you tell them that, they'll fight you tooth and nail and call you all sorts of horrible names. Why? Because the dragon deceives. That's what he does. You know, our hope is, is, is we make a true distinction between the false trinity and the real one. Our, our hope is that the worship we offer to the true lamb is not just lip service, but life service. True worship, which is reflected in our what? Our obedience. Guys, faith without works is dead. In other words, faith, in other words, faith without obedience is dead. Guys, obedience is God's love language. You want to show your love for Jesus? Obey him. And I didn't coin this phrase. That's Jesus's words. He said that. So if you're, you're, you're failing to obey him, now you know. You can be mad at me for saying it, but you can get out of here with that nonsense and take that up with Jesus. I'm just loving you enough to speak the truth. And trust me, when we get to the finish line, you will thank me for always being this truth bearer. I want to see you live a full life in Christ. I want to see you get to the finish line and Jesus say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome in to paradise. Come on in. That's why I exhaust myself doing this. Guys, my hope is that we examine the mark carefully and ask, to whom do we belong? In other words, my hope is that we carefully inspect our own lives with a view towards radical obedience to the Lamb and offering the worship that He is due. So take time now. Right now. Go examine. Take inventory. Be real. Understand that God doesn't have time for the shenanigans. Guys, time is ticking. My friends, this is all for this week's episode of Straight Talk with Celine. Tune in next week for episode 14 as we finish this chapter, Revelation 14. You know, we get into the three angels. We get into the harvest of the earth. It's the good news of God's judgment. And we dive into a picture of Jesus at the end of age. So come back and join me because it's, it's going to be a good one. Guys, take care for now. My friends, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. Remember that I love you with the love of Christ and I implore you to just passionately pursue Jesus with everything you have.